So Monday was MLK Day, signed into law under President Reagan, and the purpose was to honor Martin Luther King Jr. and remember his nonviolent advocacy to end racial segregation. As all leaders do, King certainly had his own character flaws. He even rejected some teachings about Christ that are central to the gospel. But on what King got right, that we ought to judge a person not based on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character, we would do well as Christians to give honor where honor is due. I bring this up, however, not to go on about King himself uh, necessarily, but, but to highlight a point about slander. For some time I've watched even Christians slander one another when it comes to MLK. From one side, to say anything positive about Mr. King means you must have drank the leftist Kool-Aid and are a borderline communist. From the other side, to criticize anything of Mr. King's character or doctrine means you're either a racist or someone who lost touch with their roots. Now, barring the most extreme exceptions, these knee-jerk reactions illustrate what the Bible calls slander. Both sides make a false assumption based on something left unstated, and then uh, they take that false assumption and use it to smear the other person before others. And the result not only misrepresents the person, it spreads falsehood, it cultivates fear, and it divides relationships. Well, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul finds himself facing a similar kind of slander. Folks heard him saying that faith in Christ alone marked God's covenant people, that circumcision was not necessary for Gentiles. And then they make the false assumption that Paul must also oppose circumcision for Jews and teach against Jewishness and the law and the temple and so on. They slander him and it presents a fairly sticky situation for some members in the Jerusalem church. What do they decide? How do they handle this situation? What lessons might we learn from the situation about serving in God's mission? It's been a couple months since we've been in Acts. Uh, The risen Jesus is advancing his kingdom through his spirit-empowered people. They're, they're They're spreading the gospel to all nations. It began in Jerusalem. It spread to Judea and Samaria. And and now it is spreading to the ends of the earth. Syria hears the word. Cyprus, Pamphylia, Pisidia, Galatia, Phrygia, Macedonia, Achaia, Ephesus, and so forth. The gospel is going out. Ten years and three missionary journeys later... After many bow the knee to King Jesus, Paul finds himself constrained by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem and then head to Rome. And that marks the final uh, shift in the book of Acts. And from this point forward, Paul heads into Jerusalem and then makes his way to Rome in a not-so-pleasant manner. Five different occasions Paul must give a defense before various rulers. And part of Luke's point through it all 
is to demonstrate and to exalt Christ as the sovereign Lord and the sovereign ruler over all that happens. He puts his messenger right where he wants him. Any person in power can read the book of Acts and see that Jesus is the one with ultimate power and that Jesus is the true Lord and that nothing happens apart from his say. Luke also wants to vindicate Paul. He's innocent. Any pagan leader could pick up and read the book of Acts and see that Christianity was no direct threat to Rome. It was, it was actually just and right to let Christians continue preaching the gospel without fear of government intrusion. But in the process, Luke also presents an example in Paul when governments do interfere. And he shows what it means to defend the faith, to strengthen the church, to to live peaceably before pagan authorities. In short, the example equips the church to serve in God's mission. At least three lessons emerge from Paul's missionary work in this next section that that we'll cover today. And the first lesson comes in verses 15 through 20. Missionary work finds its significance not in what we do for God, but in what God does through us. Missionary work finds its significance not in what we do for God, but in what God does through us. Look at verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem... And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, They glorified God. Let's stop there. Notice first the church's glad reception of Paul. Every once in a while you'll find someone reading into this passage all kinds of tension between Paul and the leaders of the Jerusalem uh, church. Uh, For them, you know, the tension serves as kind of a backdrop for the things that James will mention in, in just a moment. But... But from the outset, Luke couldn't be clearer here. The church's disposition toward Paul is one of warmth and unity. Nation shows them great hospitality. The brothers received us gladly, it adds. That's that's no small statement within Acts. It stresses the abiding joy and unity between those devoted primarily to Jewish evangelism and those devoted primarily to Gentile evangelism. The Lord has one mission to reach both groups with the same gospel. They support each other's efforts. They're eager to hear of the Lord's work through them. Which brings us to Paul's God-centered report. In verse 19, Paul relates one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Notice it's not all the things we had done, but all the things God had done. And that's the pattern of Paul's reports. Uh, In chapter 14, verse 27, they gathered the church and declared all that God 
had done with them. Uh, How God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In Romans 15, verse 18, Paul says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. See, missions is not first the work of the church or any particular leader in the church. It's first the work of God. To lose sight of this leads to all kinds of problems, much like we observe in 1 Corinthians. People boasting in their favorite teacher instead of in the Lord. Or today, it's not uncommon to hear someone share how much a church is growing. And the first question is, what did you guys do? Meaning, what formula did you create? What programs did you employ? What methods did you embrace? What media did you advertise with to produce this increase? And then some publisher learns of it, prints a book on how to make your church grow in seven easy steps, all the while ignoring God. Salvation is of the Lord, beloved. Yes, we work hard and we strategize and we find new ways to reach more people, but in the end, God is the chief missionary. God is on a mission to save a people for himself from all nations to celebrate his grace. And we are but the privileged participants in his mission. Sinful though we are, weak as we are, timid as we are, jars of clay as we are, How amazing that God includes us in what He's doing. That by grace He puts this treasure called the gospel in us and says, go and share it with others on my behalf. When we recognize the God-centered nature of our mission, not only will it kill man-centered boasting, not only will it undercut this celebrity culture that we see even in evangelical circles, It will cultivate a God-glorifying response. And that's what happens next. When the church hears about God's work among the Gentiles, they glorify God. They recognize His greatness. It's a joyful occasion, much like uh, when we hear reports of others coming to faith in Christ through the testimony of our missionaries, or, or when we hear testimonies at members' meetings of how God saved each one of us. We glorify God for that. We don't clap for you. We clap for God and celebrate His grace in your life. We deserve nothing except God's wrath. And yet we find ourselves by His grace adopted through Christ. Glorify God, church. Sing praises to His name. Tell of His wonders from day to day. For He has done great things for us and we are glad. Find your joy In glorifying God. That's the point of the mission. And that's what we see going on in the book of Acts as the gospel goes forward. Second lesson. Missionary work requires great humility and wisdom to dispel slander, preserve unity, and spread the gospel. Missionary work requires great humility and wisdom to dispel slander, preserve unity, and spread the gospel. The gospel. The Lord saved many Gentiles through Paul's ministry abroad, but the Lord also saved many Jews in Jerusalem. 
Verse 20 indicates many thousands. It could also be translated myriads. But as we've witnessed elsewhere, wherever the gospel spreads, opposition won't be far behind. In verses 20 to 26, James presents a problem facing the church and then how they work to solve it. Verse 20. They said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their, ta- pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took them and the next day he purified himself along with them And went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, to understand the nature of this uh, problem, it's best to see it in light of Acts 15. Uh, In fact, James mentions in verse 25 a letter uh, that they had sent to the Gentiles. We actually have that letter in Acts chapter 15. Chapter 15 of Acts also explains why that letter happened. Okay, so you had these Jews and they were wondering what bearing the law of Moses had on Gentiles since the coming of Christ. Some Jewish false teachers were saying Gentiles must keep the law of Moses in order to be saved You might say it was legalism with a capital L. But there were also some Jewish Christians wrestling with with whether Gentiles must keep the law after they're saved. So it was, you might call it, legalism with a lowercase l. Well, the apostles, including Paul and James, get together... And they decide what to do about this situation in Acts 15. And here's what they do. They protect the church by distancing themselves from the false teachers. Saying, no, no, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Don't listen to these guys. And then they also nurture the saints inside the church by clarifying that Gentile Christians don't have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses. Circumcision and other customs like that were a matter of indifference. And that's what the letter was about that they sent to the Gentiles, right? It's it's to say, hey, if you're a Gentile, don't worry about circumcision and keeping the law of Moses and all that, but, but do pursue holiness. Abstain from idolatry and immorality that saturates your culture, but don't worry about this circumcision and, and law, uh, keeping the law of Moses. Well, 
Paul agrees with that, of course, and he goes about his business and he's preaching the gospel to other cities and he's telling all the Gentiles, hey, you don't have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses. And here's where the Jews of chapter 21, likely the false teachers again, make a wrong assumption and start the rumor mill among Jews. They assume wrongly that if Paul teaches it's unnecessary that Gentiles be circumcised and follow Jewish customs, Paul must also oppose Jews doing the same. But that wasn't true. Paul never teaches that Jews shouldn't get circumcised. He just taught it's a matter of indifference when it comes to salvation. Making something a matter of indifference isn't the same as saying you shouldn't do it at all. Moreover, saying that Gentiles, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised doesn't mean Jews shouldn't be circumcised or practice their customs. Paul actually lived just the opposite. He chose to circumcise Timothy, who was half Jewish. Back in chapter 16, verse 3, he shaved his head before, uh, after being under a, a vow in chapter 18, verse 18. Paul isn't opposed to Jewish customs. Just so long as nobody's elevating them in a way that undermines the gospel and justification by faith alone. Regardless, though, some were slandering Paul by spreading these false assumptions among uh, Jews in the church. Like, hey, did you know Paul? Paul, Paul, in order to be a Christian, you have to forsake all your Jewishness. Spreading, spreading these rumors about Paul. It's not hard to imagine what sort of worry, even division, uh, that, that such a rumor might cause in a church filled with primarily Jewish Christians who are zealous about their customs. So, what's the solution? The solution is one that will dispel the slander and then also preserve the church's unity. And Paul lays, I mean, James lays out the plan. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, just to be clear, this isn't isn't a matter of, of, of how somebody gets saved, right? They all agree in chapter 15 that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. It's also not to criticize what what, what Paul teaches Gentiles, right? Again, James agrees with Paul back in chapter 15, verse 19. He's the one that actually draws the conclusion for the council. And he still agrees with that, uh, still agrees with Paul by mentioning the letter again here in verse 25. Also, the concern isn't the moral principles within the law and then reapplied by the apostles, Rather, James's proposal simply addresses Jewish customs like circumcision and, and, and vows and so forth, and he views this as an opportunity for Paul to dispel the slander and preserve the unity. It's basically a way of, of, to say, hey, why don't you show them, Paul, that these rumors are groundless? And so Paul does so in verse 26. He follows through with the plan. Now let's just think about that. I mean, after all that Paul had done... For the church in Jerusalem, why bother with this petty stuff? 
For months, he's been traveling from Gentile church to Gentile church and collecting, getting all the Gentiles to go in together on a collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. That is poor economically, not like poor Christians, poor Christians, but Christians who are poor, right, in Jerusalem. And, 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 and he's finally there in Jerusalem with the collection and he delivers the collection. We don't find this out here. We do find it out later in chapter 24, verse 17, when he's kind of reflecting on when he came to Jerusalem. This is what he did. He, came, he gave them, he brought his alms to, to the saints. Wasn't that enough? I mean, why do something so petty like pay for these guys' haircuts? Paul could have said, no. Haven't I done enough? Let's just sit these slanderers down and I'll tell them a thing or two. We don't have to guess what he would have said. Just read Galatians. But that's not his disposition. Instead, he he humbly agrees to participate... And what Paul exemplifies here is the principle we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law... I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul didn't have to do this. But he willingly chose to do it. He doesn't become a Jew in every respect as if to resort back to the law as his covenant master. No, but he does become a Jew in some ways that by all means he might save some. And the saving there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 doesn't, uh, it has, it not only has to do with winning, winning new converts to faith in Christ, but also preserving those con- converts who already placed their faith in Christ. So what wisdom we see illustrated here? What what earnest care these leaders show to preserve the church's unity? What humility we see in Paul's willingness to flex in this way and that to, to save God's people? Beloved, we can learn from this, can't we? We can learn from this whole situation. It's not necessarily Luke's point here, but... The passage certainly illustrates why we should be careful with our assumptions about others. Some made false assumptions about Paul and then used slander to trouble and divide the church. Beloved, we must not participate in this kind of slander. Be slow to speak. In our day, be slow to repost, retweet, meme, and so on. Do your homework. Hold out charity to others when something is unclear. Beloved, wolves divide the sheep with falsehood and slander. But we do find great wisdom in the way James and Paul handle the situation. And that gets us closer to Luke's point. James and Paul stick to the truth of the gospel, which they both agreed to in chapter 15. 
And then they found ways to serve their Jewish neighbors instead of reviling them. They put together a plan that was committed to the gospel, sensitive to Jewish customs, and helpful to the church's unity. And we also see in Paul a humble servant. In the face of slander, he willingly serves his Jewish friends uh, in ways that will spread the gospel without subverting the gospel. Using his words, he became a servant to all that he might win all the more. He will also go on in 1 Corinthians to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So imitate his service, beloved. And not just because Paul is a good moral man. No, no, no. Imitate him because in this act here, we see the risen Christ at work in Paul. We're imitating Christ who's at work in Paul. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Not only does Christ's path set the example, His death also liberates us to walk in that example. In the face of slander, and there's a lot of it today, especially on social media, let's respond with humility and let's respond with wisdom that will help dispel slander that will help preserve the unity of the church, and that will help spread the gospel. That's the goal, to have God use us in whatever, on whatever platform and, in whatever, and through whatever avenues, to have God use us to build up the church and spread the gospel. Lesson number three. Missionary work includes following in the footsteps of Jesus who suffered even though he was innocent. Missionary work includes following in the footsteps of Jesus, who suffered even though he was innocent. You know, sometimes Christians do all the right things, and people respond positively. But many times Christians can do all the right things, and others hate them even more. Paul gets hated even more. In this next section. Look at verse 27. It says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired how he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. 
And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Now notice how the slander increases. I mean, they they falsely accuse him of teaching against the people and the law and this place. By the way, Stephen was accused of the same back in chapter 6, verse 13. Paul was among those accusing Stephen at the time. And he was among those who went on to stone Stephen. What we see here is that God has radically changed this man in Christ. Paul is now preaching what Stephen once preached. And they now level the same charges against Paul. But anybody reading Acts knows the facts. It's exactly the opposite. Paul isn't teaching against the people. Why did he bring money for the poor in Jerusalem? Why did he willingly practice the Jewish customs? Why did he have Timothy circumcised? And above all, why did he labor to teach them their scriptures and show them their Messiah and, and tell them that Jesus has come to save them? He's not against them. He's for them in the greatest of ways. He also doesn't teach against the law or against the temple. Like Stephen, Paul shows how the law and the temple have reached their fulfillment in Christ and his person and his work. And we find this in Paul's teaching not only in Acts but also elsewhere in his letters. Notice how Luke also points out that Paul didn't actually bring Trophimus into the temple. Verse 29, they only supposed that Paul brought him into the temple. See, again, more of this, they're just increasing the slander here. Well, we assumed this about his teaching, and now we suppose that Paul did something, and then slander, slander, slander just keeps coming out. But Paul, throughout Acts, has proven innocent. Paul, Luke shows that Paul is innocent of these charges by the Jews. But consider the scene a bit more. We have a man traveling around from city to city preaching the kingdom of God. He sets his face to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, the Jews are in an uproar. The Jews accuse him of being against the law and against the temple. But he is innocent. And then they try to kill him. And in doing so, the Roman authorities have to get involved. And the crowd finally turns violent and shouts, Away with him! Does the scene remind you of anyone else? In Luke chapter 23, Pilate said to the chief priests and the rulers of the people, Behold, I didn't find this Jesus guilty of any of your charges against him. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man. Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Paul's sufferings are not redemptive like Jesus' sufferings were. 
But Jesus' sufferings freed Paul to deny his own self and to take up his cross and to follow Jesus on the same road. And here we see the risen Lord Jesus living in Paul and compelling Paul to walk the same path of love even when that path leads to suffering unjustly. It was the Spirit of Jesus who led Paul to Jerusalem in the first place. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 to 24 say this. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called... That's an amazing line after, after that verse. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." Because Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, we can die to sin and live to righteousness. What does that righteousness look like? We're seeing it play out in the Apostle Paul. It looks like the life we find here in Paul. Now, as an apostle and pioneering missionary, uh, as, as someone for whom the Lord revealed a very specific mission to Jerusalem and then to Rome through visions and prophecy... Paul certainly had a unique ministry that's unlike what the majority of ours will look like. But his pattern of life is worthy of imitation. He willingly serves his neighbor in the face of slander. He willingly suffers in the face of injustice, all to get the gospel into the lives of others, to see the church strengthened, and to see the risen Lord Jesus magnified. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for the Lord to help us Take up that same cross. When the world slanders us, let's take up that same cross and follow in these footsteps. Let's pray for the Lord to give us the same humility to serve when we feel that our reputation has been maligned and slandered. Let's pray for the Lord to give us wisdom when outsiders respond to the gospel with hostility. Let's ask for a grace to that, that will endure evil with patience and give ourselves to the Lord's will, even when that means we suffer for His namesake. And let's also take courage from Paul's life. Uh, just like the other churches had taken courage from Paul's life. 
in Paul's day. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 14, that most of the brothers and sisters, when they saw Paul's imprisonment for the gospel, they became much more bolder to speak the word without fear. And that's my hope for us as we're reading and, and seeing Paul's life play out over these next eight chapters that we would become more bold to speak the word without fear. That's a prayer for myself. I too want to take courage from Paul's sufferings. I too want to see the work of Christ in and through Paul and then imitate it. I too want, no matter what comes, want to to share the word without fear. So let's, let's come now to, to the table together of the Lord. And let's confess where we've lost sight of this mission. And then let's ask His forgiveness and, and help as we eat together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.